Um, okay, so we, we are in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're moving into our uh, third, uh, the third you know, we're just naming these Matthew Part 1, Matthew Part 2, Matthew Part 3, not trying to give titles. So this is Part 3. Um, last week, we looked at some interesting dynamics in the, in the genealogy uh, that Matthew starts this Gospel off. It's 28 chapters, and uh, Matthew, remember, we said, he, it, you know, Matthew didn't wait 30 or 40 years to write this. It took him 30 or 40 years to write this. And so Matthew assembled this gospel with incredible intentionality. And after all that time, he still chose to start this gospel uh, with a list of names, what we call a genealogy. Uh, And today we're going to move into the next section, but we're going to do it by connecting it to this genealogy uh, that Matthew starts with. And, you know, genealogies are packed full of names. And names, names are, are, they are really important. We, we see it all over the Bible. Uh, you know, the song we sang just a minute ago called Jireh, that, that is playing off of an Old Testament name of Jesus, Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, which means the God who provides. And so Jireh is one of the names that God gets in the Old Testament. Uh, if you think about people, uh, it, it's, it's very common throughout the, throughout the uh, Old Testament, especially, but even into the New Testament, to see uh, some, some child be born and be given a name that has something to say uh, about their birth. Every once in a while, it's something traumatic about their birth. Sometimes it's something uh, quite uh, enjoyable uh, about their birth. Uh, you see it all, all throughout the Bible. Um, you see Abram uh, getting his name changed to Abraham. Uh, you see Jacob's name getting changed to Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, you see Jesus uh, changing P- uh, Simon's name to Peter. Uh, We see Saul's name getting shifted to Paul. And so throughout the Bible, we see this this, uh, intensity with a name, that the name that a person is given uh, carries uh, some some notable uh, weight to it. And it's true in our culture, too. Um, I mean, if you just if you think about the the the, uh, the way that our culture responds to things, uh, just um, some examples like anticipating. I mean, you know, the the royal family has been in the news lately. I don't know if you've noticed this, um, but they've been everywhere. Um, and if you think back a few decades ago when uh, Prince Charles and, Di- and Princess Diana were, got got married, man, they, then you know, then the announcement comes that Diana's pregnant. And it's like the whole world could not wait uh, to, to meet this baby, but they wanted to know what is the baby going to be named? And so it's this big, big deal and all this anticipation and all this, this eagerness. What are they going to name their, their sons? And then she got pregnant a second time. Um, Elon Musk, uh, you know, names have uniqueness sometimes. Uh, Elon Musk and his girlfriend, uh, they named their daughter, um, it's pronounced X-Ash-A-12. But it is symbols and numbers, and it is one of the most unique names uh, that's, that's out there. And, you know, you'd be like, what does it mean? Well, it actually does mean something to them. Uh, they have uh, a reason for doing it, and it's pretty weird. Um, and, then it, and then if you think about names that are changed, um, I'm, I'm uh, working my way through Bono's um, memoir. Bono is the lead singer of U2, but he was um, uh, born Paul Hewson. And that, his, his, he was not born Bono. He changed his name uh, to, to Bono. And what about Mufasa and Sarabi? You know, naming, naming uh, Simba. That was quite a dramatic uh, reveal of, uh, of him. And then have you ever thought about what a name can do? So, you know, we're talking about, like, definitions or the, the meaning of names. And, uh, you know, think of Rob Lowe. I don't know. You know, you know the actor Rob, Rob Lowe? Well, I, I ran into this on, on Thursday 
And uh, this is going to be like a song getting stuck in your head. So I'm going to share this with you, but then you need to follow me through the sermon. All right? So Rob Lowe. How many Lowe's could Rob Lowe rob if Rob Lowe could rob Lowe's? <laughs> I'm telling you, the more you think about that, the more you're going to laugh. It is a delightful little phrase. And um, it's like, who knew? Who knew Rob Lowe's name could, could do that? And so, yeah, so innate names, they are a, they are a big deal. Uh, they can offer anticipation. They can mean something. They can be changed. All, all, all kinds of things are related to this. And today, Matthew is going to tell us about the naming of the most important person uh, in, in history. So let's look at Matthew part 3 uh, in verses 18 through 25. We're going to start off with the father of the son. So I said last week we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. And if you have your Bibles there, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, you'll see that it's just a long list of names. But last week, I tried to invite you into a, uh, into a recognition that the way it, it, it breaks into these various sections, and it has an up-down-up movement to it. And so there's kind of a moving up to David and kind of the, the ascendance of the people of God that are in Jesus's line. And then from David down to exile, it is a descending line. It is a, a line where it's not going well. From, from you know, David's son Solomon inherits an incredible situation, but he really fumbles it. And it doesn't fall apart under Solomon, but it does fall apart under Solomon's sons. And it's a decline all the way into exile. And so many aspects of the Old Testament are inviting us to consider the call of God to the people of God, to the nation of Israel, to turn from that. And we see it in the psalmists, we see it in the prophets, and there's this call to like get, get, no, turn from this trajectory. It's, it's, you're not headed in the right way. And yet they don't. They say they're going to, but they never do, and they end up in exile. And then the last section of Jesus' genealogy that Matthew records for us has an up sense to it again, an up trajectory, where we see this, this work, uh, this movement towards the birth of Jesus. And so we said there was divine mercy in that first section, then divine judgment in the second section, and then we see the divine faithfulness of God in keeping his promise to send the Messiah. It's quite, quite a powerful uh, little genealogy that might just look like a list of names, and yet we're invited into these rhythms of the actual work of God in the world. Well, there's two more interesting things about that opening genealogy that really lead us into the text that we're looking at today, and I didn't point out either of them last week. So last week, we mentioned that in that first line, that first up, uh, that first section from, uh, from Abraham to, uh, to David, um, that there were four women that were mentioned in that section. And all four of those women were outsiders. They were foreigners. Uh, all four of those women had a level of scandal to their name. So it's not common to have women in a genealogy in the first place. But then to put foreigners who have a level of scandal in the genealogy, in the genealogy of Jesus is one of the ways that Matthew is declaring the mercy of God. That God's mercy is more. God's mercy is open. God's, the, door is, the door is wide open, not just to the people of Israel, but to all the people of the earth. And so having four women mentioned is uncommon. But as interesting as, as interesting as it is to record four women, did you notice there, there's a fifth? There's actually five women mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. The first four happen early, but the fifth one is mentioned in verse 16. And it's Mary. 
Now, if you were to hop over to Luke's gospel, you get a lot more information about Mary in Luke's gospel than you do in Matthew's gospel. But what an incredible story about this this woman, Mary, who is engaged or betrothed to be married, and then she's showing up in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Now, it is true that Roman Catholic theology has lifted Mary to levels that that the Bible does not lift Mary to. But it's also true that Protestant theology has often, in response to that, has diminished Mary almost to like just a common person. And there's a a very real sense in in which, man, God God was at work in in, in, in this young teenage girl to do something unique in the world. And that the way the Bible talks about Mary does give Mary an incredible sense of value and significance in the story of the Messiah. And so Matthew puts Mary right there in the genealogy of Jesus. And you could say, for at least from some perspective, that she also has a level of scandal. It's, it's a teenage unwed pregnancy. And so Matthew, though, he doesn't want us to miss it. He puts her front and center which leads to the other thing that I want you to see in this genealogy. That there's another change. So we mentioned last week that there's, there's a couple things that Matthew does with his genealogy that does not align with history, and it appears that Matthew does it on purpose, and it has to do with the name of two of the kings. But if you think about this, there, there's another alteration. There's another thing that kind of breaks the pattern, or it's not normal. If you'll notice in verse 16... Matthew does not identify the father of Jesus. These two points are related. Matthew inserting Mary, and then Matthew not mentioning the father of Jesus. Look at the pattern. If you have your Bible open, you can look in verse 14. It'll also be on the screen behind me. But you just see this pattern, line after line, of Azor, the father of Zadok. And it just keeps going. The father of, the father of, the father of, the father of, all the way down to Jacob, the father of Joseph. But do you notice what Matthew does next? Joseph, the husband of Mary. He, he bails on the pattern. He, he's, been, he's been naming the father of, the father of, the father of. And then he gets down to the end and he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Matthew breaks the pattern. He alters the pattern. Jo- Joseph is named, but he's not named as the father of Jesus. And what is Matthew helping us see? What is he saying? Well, in verse 17, he says that there are 14 generations. But guess what? This 14th generation has no father listed. There, so there are only 13 human generations named from the exile to the birth of Jesus. What is Matthew doing? If you only name 13, what's, what's he pointing out? He's pointing to a miraculous 14th generation. Who is the true and better father of Jesus? Yes, Joseph played this role of an earthly father in proximity to Jesus. But what Matthew wants us to see is that God the Father Almighty, as the Apostles' Creed puts it, that that is the father of Jesus. That God the Father functions as this ultimate role of Father of Jesus. Matthew wants us to see the Father as bringing deity to the world. And so he doesn't list an earthly father. Instead, he's pointing us to 
the heavenly father. And then Jesus brings that language of heavenly father uh, to the forefront multiple times over the course of his ministry. He, Jesus wants us to know who his, who his uh, father is as well. And so we start off by seeing in this genealogy that Matthew actually changes the pattern. He leaves some things out. He adds Mary in order to help us wrestle with, wait a minute, who, who is the father of this son? Oh, God the Father Almighty, Heavenly Father, a miraculous 14th generation. So the father of the son. Secondly, the, the birth of the son. As you look at verses 18 through 25, if you have your Bible open there, I, I want to kind of bring three thoughts uh, about this, the, these verses uh, as we think about the birth of the son. I know that Christmas was, was last month, and so we're, uh, um, you, know, you might feel like a month late to be reading a passage like this. Um, and yet, this is news that's been declared for 2,000 straight years. And it's news that we want to declare in January as much as we do in the month of December. And so, so a few thoughts. First, Matthew wants us to see this as sort of a new start. Look at verse 18. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ. That, that's actually, the, the literal translation would be the genesis of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.1 uses the same exact Greek word when it talks about the book of the genealogy. That word genealogy is the same word. It's the word for Genesis. And so Matthew says the beginning of the Christ. Here in verse 18, the beginning of the Christ. Matthew wants us to, to digest this and to think about this as something new has showed up. Yeah, we'll talk about it more in a second. He hasn't gotten rid of the Old Testament, but something new is on the table this is a fresh start. This is a new start. Something is happening. And Matthew uses that Genesis word to cause alarms to go off in the minds of the original readers. The Genesis of Jesus. Remember Genesis chapter 1-1 and the beginning of the world. Well, here's this new beginning. Something is happening that, that Matthew doesn't want us to miss. In fact, the entire layout of Matthew's 28 chapters seem to emphasize this sense of, of a new beginning. Matthew starts off his first four chapters with kind of an introductory. This is a biography, and the first four chapters are like an introductory, and then the last three chapters are like the conclusion. But in between that, we'll show this as we go through the series, but it breaks down into five very clear sections that are in the middle, like that's the meat of Matthew's gospel. And as Matthew assembled this, he has an introduction and a conclusion, and in the middle he has five books. What, what does the Bible start off with? Five books. It's called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And those five books are these significant books in the story of Israel. And as Matthew comes and he presents to us this Jesus, he assembles the content in a way to where he gives us an introduction to him and then he gives us five books. And it's almost like Jesus is the true and better Moses. And these five books are the true and better Pentateuch. Now, don't get rid of the Old Testament Pentateuch, but here's a new, a new way of thinking about it. Here's these five books that reveal the work and person of Jesus. Second, Matthew does not typically record a lot of drama, but boy, verses 18 and 19 are a scandal. He just kind of puts it out there. He just kind of writes it in a sentence or two. 
And you're like left with like, it's, it's like almost too much in that short of a space uh, on your, in, your, in the pages of your Bible. But this is a scandal. This is, this is a, most likely a teenager who is betrothed to be married, and she shows up pregnant. Now, a lot of us aren't very familiar with the dynamics in the, mid, mid, in the mid, uh, Mideast in the first century, and that would be quite understandable. But this idea of being betrothed has a similarity to our culture's, culture's, our culture's sense of being engaged, but it's just got more teeth to it. So a lot of marriages were arranged marriages. So a, 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 a bride and a groom, they'd be a, a, it'd be an arranged marriage, so the parent would have a lot of role in this marriage, there's a contract that ends up happening between the groom and the father of the bride. And when there's an agreement that they are going to get married, they're considered betrothed. And then there's a space of time where those contract details are worked out. I know this sounds really romantic, doesn't it? And, and so there's this space in time where they are betrothed to be married, but they haven't officially gotten married yet, and they're working out the contract details. And in that culture, it was completely appropriate in that betrothal period to start to refer to them as husband and wife because it's basically a done deal. They just haven't made it official yet. It's in that window of time that Mary shows up pregnant. If you jump over to Luke's gospel, you know that Mary went and visited Elizabeth for like three months. And so you could be like, oh man, she, like she went out of town and came back pregnant. She's betrothed to, to Joseph, but she is pregnant. It's, it's, a, it's a scandal. It, it's a problem. That's when, I mean, it's in that betrothal period that it becomes uh, apparent that she is, she is pregnant. And it's a scandal because Joseph has no additional details. In verses 18 and 19 is all Joseph knows is Mary's pregnant. That's it. But look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so Joseph, he doesn't have any details. Is All he knows is that this woman that he was supposed to be married, that they may have been referring to as husband and wife, is now pregnant and he knows it's not his. But look at what he does. I mean, in that culture, Joseph could have thrown the book at her. And a lot of men would have. It was incredibly embarrassing. It was embarrassing for Mary. But in that culture, especially without the extra details, it's incredibly embarrassing for Joseph. It looks like uh, there was a, a level of, of adultery, of Mary being unfaithful. And Joseph, without any more details, look at what he does. He says, I, I want to handle this quietly. The Bible tells us that because he was a just man, he didn't want this to be a big scandal. He didn't want it to be bigger than it needed to be. He wanted it to be quiet. He wanted it to be handled off the books, out of sight. He didn't want the extremist people to get a hold of Mary. She could have been stoned for something like this. He wants it to be kept quiet. And the Bible says because he was a just man. Now, the Greek word that's used to translate just there can also be used to translate uh, the word righteous. And Matthew loves the word righteous. We're going to run into this word a bunch over the course of the 28 chapters uh, that he wrote. And, and so th this word is, 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 is righteous. And when you hear the word righteous, you know, I think maybe if you grew up in the church or grew up around the Bible, you, you could think of that word righteous. And, and the first thing that comes to your mind is like doing what's right, being holy, like obeying. Like that's, that's a righteous person. A righteous person is someone who does 
what is right. Well, the word righteous does have those dynamics. And we're going to run into it a bunch of times, so we don't need to try to solve it all right now. But let me just say this. The word righteous in the Bible is richer and deeper than just doing what is right. It has a relational sense to it. So it's almost like if you've ever said to someone like, are we all right? Are we okay? Are we all right? That's not saying, did I do the right thing? It's like saying, are we relationally in a place where this is working? And so righteousness has a relational component to it. It definitely has a holiness component to it, but it also has a mercy component to it. And so when Matthew is saying, here's what happened with Joseph, he looks at Joseph and says, because he was this kind of like this biblical righteousness, because that's what made Joseph who he was, because that was inherent in his character, he did not want Mary to pay a greater price. And so that's a pretty sweet uh, uh, statement to be made about Joseph, because you saw how he responded before he had any additional details, is all he knew is that the one that he was betrothed to Mary showed up pregnant. But that leads us to our third thought. Matthew says that this child is from the Holy Spirit. You read in verse 20, it says, But as he considered these things, Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So you know this, probably, like the angels occasionally, it doesn't happen a lot, but angels do show up in the Bible, and they declare things to people. And it's pretty common that when angels show up, they start off by saying, do not be afraid. And yet everybody is still always afraid. And they have a message. Uh, the, the, The Greek word for angel actually has this sense of messenger. It's actually what they are. They are messengers. And so they show up and they bring people messages, usually from God. And so this angel shows up to Joseph and starts off with the typical phrase, do not be afraid. But notice what the angel goes on to say. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So the angel, crystal clear, point blank, wants Joseph to know, don't be afraid about this. It's not what you think it is. This is not a result of Mary being an immoral person, of Mary being an unfaithful uh, fiancé. This baby is actually conceived from the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural work. This is something that is not Mary's quote-unquote fault. And again, Matthew does not give us much drama here. He just tells us the announcement. But it changed everything for Joseph. Because originally we saw, most, uh, we saw Joseph's righteousness and his mercy displayed on the fact that he wanted to just handle this as quietly as possible. And in that culture, it was an incredibly merciful thing to do. But now, it changes even more. He hears this message from the angel, and he just gets up and he does it. He just, I mean, look, look, look at verse 24. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. And that's, that's pretty phenomenal stuff about Joseph. It's like, oh, like that's the situation? That still doesn't make any sense, but I'll obey it. I'll take my wife. I'll marry her. We'll go through with it. We'll go through with it. And it says he doesn't know his wife. You know, don't you love the Bible's sensitivity here? That means that they did not consummate their marriage uh, until after the baby was, was born. And so Joseph receives this word from the angel, and it shifts everything. Now he doesn't divorce her. He doesn't end the marriage. He goes through with it, and they get married. Can you see how Trinitarian this passage is? 
This has all three of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at work. We have God the Father sending God the Son through the work of the Holy Spirit. Matthew wants us to see the Father and the Spirit bringing deity into the world. They, they, they have various roles that they're playing, and the Son ends up being born into this world. It is a miracle. It's, it's a miracle. You know, uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this today, but if, if you realize that this is how the Christ came into the world, then is anything else he does surprising? If the incarnation, this is called the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, if this is true, then why would we be surprised about anything else he does? Turning water into wine? Feeding 5,000 people? Even conquering death? Why would any of that be surprising if this is the origin story? If we get the incarnation right, boy, it sets us up to receive the work of Jesus in the world. And Matthew wants us to get the incarnation right, the birth of Jesus. Lastly, the, uh, the name, the name of the Son. We talked about names at the beginning of the sermon here. Jesus is a very familiar name in our culture. Uh, I would guess that almost every single person in our culture is familiar with the name Jesus. Maybe you've seen that there's a huge ad campaign that's going on. A lot of these ads are playing during football games, uh, but the, they anticipate over the course of years to spend about a billion dollars on this ad campaign called He Gets Us. And they are all these really well-done marketing ads to try to communicate uh, uh, maybe a, uh, a side of Jesus that is often uh, missed or not presented very clearly, like that, that Jesus had trouble with his family too, that Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected, that Jesus knows what it's like to be a refugee, that Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. And there's this entire ad campaign, and it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. And I, I, I see those commercials, and I'm, I'm, I, I think it's pretty, pretty great that they're out there. Um, but it's, just, it's, it's evidence of the fact that this, this name Jesus is a name that's out there, might be misunderstood, but it's a pretty familiar name in our culture. Uh, 76% of Americans, in a, in, a, in a poll that was done by Lifeway, 76% of Americans say that they actually believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Now, that's not saying that they believe he's divine or that he's God in the flesh, but 76% of Americans believe that he's a historical figure. Um, he also has pretty good PR. A, uh, some polling that was done, a fun poll from a few years ago, found out that Jesus had a 90% favorability rating. That was only 1% behind uh, Abraham Lincoln, who had 91%. And actually, the first person, the, the top one was 93%, and that was yourself. Yourself had the best, had the best of favorability. I'm not, I'm not joking. <clears throat> but still, Jesus hit 90%, which is pretty good. But do you know what Jesus means? You know, we hear that name everywhere, but what, what does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Joshua. Yeshua. And it means God saves. That Hebrew word Yeshua is, is a, it's a combination of two words that mean Jehovah and saves or God saves. And so the little abbreviated mashup is Yeshua. And when you Hellenize it, when you move it into Greek, it's Jesus. 
And so the name Jesus actually means God saves. And if you notice in verse 21, look at how Matthew does this. He says, she will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What one commentator says, Matthew intends this to be a pun, but the pun doesn't come across in, in, in English. And, and, and basically the pun is this, you're going to call him God saves because guess what? Spoiler alert, he saves. Like that's what the name is. The name is God saves and he's going to save. Like that's what's going to happen. He wants you to see it. He's actually going to save people from their sins. And if you're here today and you just, maybe you really, maybe you really wrestle with whether or not Jesus actually came to deal with sin. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I think that, may, that makes like uh, all these complicated factors. I think Jesus just came to demonstrate love. Or Jesus came, just came to be a model and an example of how, how to live in the earth. Listen, Matthew can't be more direct about this. Matthew does not want you to miss it at all. What does Jesus' name mean? It means that God saves. What is he going to save you from? He is going to save you from sin. Jesus' name says it. Matthew tells it right off the bat here in this very first story. And his last words as a free man, Jesus, in chapter six, uh, 26 of Matthew, right before Jesus is arrested, he says it again, that this is my body, this is my blood, for the dealing of sin, that I'm going to go to the cross to deal with sin. That's what I showed up to do, to deal with this problem. Why is sin a problem? Because it separates It separates man from God. So Jesus came to deal with the separation problem. It's why he showed up. And Matthew wants it to be crystal clear. Whether it is culturally acceptable or not, Jesus came to rescue sinners, us, from sin. So when you see the bumper sticker and someone says, born okay the first time, Maybe you've seen that. Like, do I need to be born again? No, I was born okay the first time. No, Matthew says that's not actually true. That, that your situ- you do need to be born again. You do need to be rescued from your situation. That's what Jesus showed up to do. And historically, Bible scholars have looked at this name Jesus and realized that it declares two deep realizations, two deep doctrinal truths. First, who Jesus is. He's God. And then what Jesus does, he saves. What does Jesus' name mean? God saves. What does it tell us? Who he is, God, and what he does, saves. This name Jesus is no accident. It's not a family name that Joseph and Mary picked out. It's a name that is declaring what Jesus showed up to do. Throughout these opening verses, Matthew wants us to see the Father and the Spirit bringing deity to the world, and now he wants us to see the Son bearing deity in the world. This is God in the flesh come to save sinners, sinners like me and you. Before I close, I want you to notice that verse 23, there's a second name for Jesus. Did you notice this? So we get the name Jesus, that that comes very clearly. I, named, I titled this third point, the name of the son, but I could have titled it the names of the son. Because the angel goes on to say he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel. 
you know, our church just turned 100 years old uh, this past May. We celebrated that. And over the course of the 100 years that we've existed, our church has had four names. But the, the, one of the names that our church had was the name Emmanuel. It was the name of the church that this church was named Emmanuel when I, when I came here. And it is a beautiful name. God with us. God with us. God present. You know, I said a moment ago that chapters one through four, are, they function as kind of like this introductory this like the introduction to the biography of Jesus. And in this introductory section, in these first four chapters, we get five stories that introduce us to who Jesus is. And all five stories use the phrase to fulfill. All five stories do that. And so it's like as Matthew writes his introduction to this biography, he wants us to fully associate who Jesus is and what he's doing with fulfillment of all those promises in the Old Testament. And so here's the first story and the first time we see Matthew saying, this is happening to fulfill. You see it right there in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet Isaiah. That a virgin would conceive and would have a baby. And this baby's name would be Emmanuel. He's not saying it's a one-to-one It's not saying that Jesus has to have a nameplate on his crib that says Emmanuel. He's saying, remember that promise? This is it. Remember when there was a promise that God would be with us, that there would be a virgin who would have a baby, and he would be God with us? This is the one. This is what you've been waiting for. This is God in the flesh. He is here, and he is present. And Matthew is pointing back to that prophecy, saying, we're not at all afraid of the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This name, Emmanuel, it reveals another aspect of Jesus. It affirms the first declaration, God, right? That name means God with us. So it affirms, just like Jesus does, that this is God. And that not only does he save, but that he's with us. There's a declaration of intimacy, of presence, of peace, of dwelling. You know, John in his gospel says that, that, that he took on human flesh and he dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson translated that as he moved into the neighborhood. God showed up here. God with us. And then you fast forward to the end of Matthew's gospel and Jesus leaves us with the announcement that he will always be with us even to the end of the age. So this gospel starts off with the declaration that he is with us, God with us, and it ends with the promise that he's never going to leave us. You see, the Son of God sent by the Father came to earth and is ever-present through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is where the whole genealogy and this birth account, they collide with us. This is where where we start to fit into the story individually and personally. This This is where it starts to come together. That this God who came to earth to save wants to be present with you and in you. And we have to try to put this all together. Matthew is telling us that God ripped the roof off of the earth and he himself climbed in here. Because the problem was way bigger than anything that you and I could ever solve. The situation that humanity finds itself in is so tragic and terrible that it is beyond any mere human's ability to fix. And so God says, I'll do it. I'll get my hands dirty. I'll climb in and I'll solve this problem. Listen, we really do need a rescue from outside of us. Sin is a real problem that needs a real solution that is bigger than this world. 
And Jesus is the answer to that. Friend, you cannot avoid this. No matter how healthy you eat or how much you exercise, no matter how long you can think you can preserve your life, you cannot avoid the reality that sin has separated you from God and that the only solution to that problem comes in the person of Christ. Do you see it? Do you see that the rescue plan is a person? That's what Matthew wants us to grab hold of. Jesus came to substitute himself so that he could save us from the consequences of sin. You know, yesterday, uh, January 28th, is a day that honors the life and work of uh, a theologian from uh, 800 years ago named uh, Thomas Aquinas. And one of his greatest like, quotable quotes is, to love is to will the good of the other. To love is to will the good of the other. Boy, is that a description of God's love for us. That God's love, as he tells us in John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, that God so loved the world that he took action. God, God so loved us, God so eagerly willed the good of the other that he got his hands dirty and came here to solve the problem himself. To take upon his shoulders all the sins of the earth, all the sins of the world, and die as the substitute so that we could be brought to God. It's such a good description of God's love for us, and it's a beautiful description of the kind of love that God wants to foster in us. You see, once you've received this kind of love from God, then the invitation for us is to turn back to the world around us and to love people like that. To actually look out there and say, whoa, I've been loved like this? Maybe that's how I should love other people. I've been loved with this kind of sacrificial love, willing the good of, an, of the other? Maybe I should live my life willing the good of others. Maybe the people in my life should, be, should receive that kind of priority. Because we've received the mercy of God. We can give the mercy of God. Just like Joseph did in his situation that we saw a few verses ago. So as we come to the table, I want to invite you to come recognizing that Jesus is God. The God who saves. The God who is present even now. As you come and get the bread and get the cup, my invitation for you is to come as if he were walking right beside you. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. At the end of Matthew, I will be with you even to the end of the age. He was physically here for that season. Now the Spirit of God superintends his presence with you. As you come to the table, imagine him being right there with you. As you participate in this, this feast, it's a, it's a small bite and a small sip, but it's meant to reflect a feast that you're welcomed at the table because of what he has won on your behalf. Realize that he wants to be with you. He wants to fill your soul. All you have to do is come. If you're not sure if that's your situation, there's some prayers on the screen uh, that will be up there during communion, and we invite you to consider those words in your conversation with God. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for this text of Scripture, and we thank you for the incredible nature of the birth of Jesus. We thank you for how Matthew makes us wrestle with that reality of the, who is the Father of Jesus, and we quickly realize, oh, it's the Father Almighty, the Heavenly Father. We consider this reality of the, the birth of Jesus being this miraculous um, moment where a, a baby is born, a virgin has a baby. The incarnation, the moment where uh, God takes on flesh, changes everything. 
And then this name, this name Jesus, this declaration that God saves and that Jesus actually will save us from our sins. God, we know we can't earn it. We know we don't deserve it. But we know that your love for us abounds in a way that causes you to will the good of the other in the most amazing, historic way. So God, we thank you for Jesus. Would you help us see him? We thank you for this bread and this cup. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.